Well, um, so glad to, to be back this morning. Uh, thank you for praying for me last week when I was in Estevan. How many of you were, were very blessed by Pastor Mandy's message last week? That's awesome. She crushed it. Well, we're currently in a series here called Let's Talk About It. And the idea with this series is just we're, we, we, we just want to be open to talk about issues and hopefully provide some biblical answers to some issues in our culture, issues in our church that typically maybe the church is uncomfortable talking about. Or, or maybe there's some confusion or some discord or some division in the church. When I say the church, I'm not necessarily talking about King's Corner, but the, 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 the body of Christ, right? The, the, the church, right? Um, and so last message, uh, we talked about divorce and remarriage. Um, everybody's favorite thing to talk about. And we talked about some of the biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. And so um, we just talked about how, how I believe personally that the Bible is very clear about adultery and abandonment of a believer by, uh, a, by an unbeliever. Um, sorry, of an unbeliever. Did I say that right? Abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. We also talked about how, how um, I personally uh, believe that we could make an argument with Scripture for abuse as another possible provision for divorce and remarriage. And so three things we made really clear last message. It's been a couple weeks. That's why I like to kind of go over things a little bit. Um, is number one, permissible doesn't necessarily mean approval. Is that right? that we always need to seek God's approval. Number two, what I presented was my personal conviction about divorce and remarriage. And each of us through Scripture and the Holy Spirit need to have our own conviction about that. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will never disagree? Amen. Amen. And that everyone, number three, everyone and anyone who's been divorced whether it's within God's boundaries of divorce or not, can always find and rely on his grace, his forgiveness, and his healing moving forward. How many of you are so glad that we serve a God whose mercies are new every morning? Wow, what a God we serve, amen? And so today is part two of this message. Uh, and so, so this message specifically is about adultery-proofing or divorce-proofing our marriage, okay? And so this message is for newlyweds, it's, it's, it's for engaged couples, it's for people that are dating, anyone who'd like to get married one day. This message is for every person that is entertaining thoughts of adultery, this message for any person that's thought, entertained thoughts of being unfaithful or is currently in an inappropriate relationship. This message is for people who've been struggling in their marriage, maybe contemplating divorce um, and just don't have God's peace, God's approval for, for what's next. And this marriage is, is for those couples that are barely hanging on. 
barely hanging on. I just want you to know that God's got you this morning too. Are we ready to go? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your presence today. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I just pray now, God, that, that we're going to be able to hear the voice of the Lord today, that, that you have something for every one of us here, no matter where we're at with you, whether we have a relationship with you or not, that you've got that rhema word, that specific message for each one of us today. And so uh, I just pray, Lord, that nothing is going to hinder us hearing your voice today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Number one, know who your Savior is. Number one, know who your Savior is. This is a, a very important life point. Remember we're talking about adultery proofing. We're talking about divorce proofing our marriages. This is a very important life point. Your spouse is not your savior. Your spouse is not your savior. Your spouse does not have the capacity or the ability to meet all of your needs all the time. Only Jesus can do that. Look at Philippians 4.19. It says, And my God will liberally supply, fill until full, your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Our provision is found in Jesus. Jesus provides our needs. Look at Psalm 37 verse 4. Find your delight in the Lord. Then he will give you everything your heart really wants. Jesus gives us the desires of our heart. Is that true? You know, Disney and, and Hollywood movies, they kind of they fantasize the idea of Prince Charming. Right? And, and he comes and he, he comes and sweeps us off our feet and, and uh, saves us from our plight. And, and then everything will be happily ever after. But the truth is the only prince, the only prince that can do that is the prince of peace. Amen? Jesus needs to be your first prince. Jesus is your savior. Seek first the kingdom of God and his king and you'll have everything you need. Jesus completes you. The only one who can complete you is the one who started a good work in you. You are his masterpiece. You are his workmanship. Amen? Jesus is the only one who can make you whole. And so what happens is when we unrealistically expect our spouses to complete us and meet all of our needs and be our savior, we get very disappointed. Because they can't do that. And disappointment from that unfulfilled expectation opens the door to resentment and offense in the marriage. That Greek word for offense, scandalon, we've talked about that a number of times here. Scandalon literally means a stumbling block. 
In the New Testament times, that word referred to a stone, an obstacle that causes one to trip, to stumble, to lose his footing, to waver, to falter, and to fall down. Many marriages lose their footing and they stumble and fall when their spouse doesn't fulfill their unrealistic expectations. And then many people choose divorce or adultery trying to find that other person to fulfill those expectations. You know, I wonder if, that's, if, if that was what was happening with the woman at the well. Do you remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? Right? And he called her out a little bit, didn't he? He said, you know what? I know you've had five husbands. And the one that you're with now, the sixth one, you're living with him, but he's not your husband. And what did Jesus say to this woman? Right? Jesus said in John four thirteen and 14, anyone who drinks from this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can give you something that these other men can't give you. I can give you something that this world can't give you. I can give you something that you'll never find in another person. But when you choose me, you'll never be thirsty again. You'll never be in need again. I can make you whole. Only Jesus can do that. Somebody say, only Jesus. Jesus. How many of you know that two halves don't make a whole? That if you're a half looking to become whole through another person, you're going to spend your entire marriage trying to get from them what only Jesus can give you. And that absolutely is a recipe for a broken marriage. Know who your Savior is. Let Jesus make you whole. Amen? Number two, number two is flip the script. Number two, flip the script. Maybe you're at a point in your marriage where you can only see your spouse's issues. You, you, you're not capable of seeing them in a positive light anymore. And you've had repeated conversations with people or repeated conversations in your thought life. Criticizing and complaining and blaming your spouse and trying to justify your position and your thoughts and your feelings. And you've been playing a victim for a long time to anyone who will listen. You know, I've seen this in, in marriage counseling a lot where I'll directly confront someone about their action or their inaction in a marriage and the response is, yes, but the reason I do that or the reason I don't do that is because of them, right? The reason I'm not willing to do what you're asking me, it's because of them, right? And so it's their fault. And, and when a spouse is not willing to, to take accountability, there's little hope for that marriage. I, I know a, a pastor, when he does marriage counseling, that, that uh, he begins the, the, the marriage counseling this way. He gives each of them a piece of paper and a pencil, has them draw a big circle on the paper. He said, that circle represents all of your problems in your marriage, all of them. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to draw a little piece of that pie, a little piece of the circle, 
and, and show me what, what you think um, what you think your responsibility is for all those problems, right? Show me, show me your part where you think the problem is. And so one person might put a little skinny <laughs> pie <clears throat> and, and maybe it says it's 10%. And then the other person maybe puts a little bit bigger and they put 25%. And, and then what that pastor does is he adds those together. He says, you know what that 35% represents? He says that represents the chance that your marriage is going to survive currently until you're ready to take accountability for your actions. You guys like that one. I'm going to try that maybe. That's good. I like that too. Um, but we need to take accountability. Stop blaming everything on our spouses. Galatians 6.5 says, For every person will have to bear with patience his own burden of faults and shortcomings for which he alone is responsible. Okay? I like this quote, and this is from a book that's called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. (laughs) The vast majority of couples that drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowball pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses focuses on what the other partner is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality difference, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. I like that term, an assassin of love. Self-justification. See, see this, flip the script, right? This, this is about surrender, this is about dying to self. This is about trying to stop trying to be right. This is about stop trying to justify yourself to everyone. This is about stop trying uh, to do that and take an honest look in the mirror with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. Not just on your own, but with the Holy Spirit. Right? But we can't flip the script until we have fully surrendered to God. Because we need to come to a place where we say, God, show me what I need to change. Show me where I need to think differently. Show me where I need to forgive. Show me where I need to say I'm sorry. Show me where I need to love better. Show me my part in this. Because you are accountable for yourself. And when you're standing before Jesus, it is not going to be an acceptable answer to say it's somebody else's fault. Because you're going to be standing there by yourself. This is so cheery so far. So number one, (laughs) know your Savior. Number two, flip the script. Number three is think right. Number three is think right. Someone, let let me say it this way. No one, no one just wakes up one morning and says, I think I'm gonna commit adultery today. No one wakes up one morning and says, "Um, you know what? I think it's time to get divorced. Right, just out of the blue, okay? Um, But first, there had to have been a number of entertained thoughts, okay? And so when I say entertain, I mean, uh, we got a lot of thoughts, don't we? Thousands of thoughts a day. 
And so when I say entertain a thought, I mean you're being hospitable to a thought. So when a thought comes in your, your mind, um, you know, whether it's a, let's say it's a bad thought. So a bad thought comes in your mind. The way we entertain that thought is we're hospitable. We say, hey, come on in. Hey, sit down. Sit down a while. You don't, you don't have to leave right away. <laughs> you know, let's, you know, can I get you something to drink? Right? And, and we entertain. We're hospitable. Right? And so we've got thoughts. Maybe as, as a married person, you've got thoughts of another person. And we're hospitable to that thought. And every day, <clears throat> you entertain it a little bit longer until eventually what happens is we start to act on it. And then we start to have inappropriate conversations and emails and, and texts. And, and, and now we're, we're talking with this person about personal and intimate things that we should only be talking about with our spouse. And now there's prolonged touches. And now it just goes from one thing to another. Right? But, but please understand, it all begins with thinking right. And 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that we need to take captive our thoughts. Have you ever thought about that word before, captive? Like, like that's not a, that's not a, you know, a casual thing that, that God's saying. Like, to take captive, it's the opposite of entertaining, isn't it? It's, it's the opposite of being hospitable, isn't it? Right? But it's, it's actually being hostile to that thought. So when a thought comes in our mind and, and, and we're not sure... Most of us probably are sure, but let's say you're not sure if that's a good thought or not. We're, we're to take it captive and bring it before Jesus. In other words, that thought, that's got to go into an interrogation room with Jesus. And then Jesus decides yes or no. And when Jesus says no, right, then that thought is put in a prison, <laughs> locked up, and you throw the key away. Right? And then Jesus decides too if it's, if it's a, a truth or if it's a lie. How many of you know that the devil's a liar? Right? And, and so you can be lied to. And so this is another reason we need to take captive those thoughts and bring them before Jesus. Because he can help us understand when the devil says, you know what, the grass is greener on the other side. God just wants you to be happy. You, you need to just take care of yourself right now, right? And you got to take those thoughts and put them before Jesus. And Jesus might say, you know what, that, that was a lie. The truth is the grass is greener where you water it. And you have not been watering your lawn. And so <clears throat> I think this helps us to take divorce off the table. Sometimes divorce is on the table in our marriages simply because we allow it to be in our thought life. You know, Charity has never thought of divorcing me. Physically harming me, perhaps. <laughs> but not divorcing me, nor I, her. There she is. 
I asked her if she was going to be in the service today. And whenever I ask her that question, she goes and hides. <laughs> I'll, I'll come, I'll be back to you in a little bit. But, but we need to take divorce off the table simply by taking it out of our thought life. Here's number, f- number four, is we need to talk. We need to use our words. I learned something interesting this week that, that for the average married couple, uh, they spend 27 minutes a week talking to each other and 46 hours a week watching TV. Does that describe your relationship? See, we become familiar with each other, familiar with the routine. We're tired from work. How many of you get tired from work? How many of you love your downtime? I love my downtime. I love it. But what happens is we stop talking to each other. And then someone comes along and they start saying all the right things. Because you can be sure that when you're not talking to your spouse, that someone will be. Proverbs 5.3 says, For the lips of an adulterous man or woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. See, that's telling us that, that she or he, they're going to know exactly what your spouse needs to hear. They're going to know exactly what to say to stroke their egos. Right? They're going to they're gonna say all the things that you should be saying. Right? And we see this in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis 3, 6. Adam's with Eve, and, and the devil comes, and he starts talking to Eve. And, and by the time he's through, Eve is offering some fruit to Adam, but did she have to go very far to find him? No. He, he was literally right there. And so he's not talking. And you can believe when you're not talking, there's going to be some snake that will be. We need to talk to our spouses. I like this description. This is Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and verse 10 to 16. This is, a, this is a woman talking about her man. I like this. My lover is radiant and ruddy. Outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. If I had a nickel for every time... Charity said, my arms were like rods of gold and my legs like pillars of marble. I'd be a wealthy man. You know, 
It's not true. You know, it, generally speaking, it seems like men are very confident with their appearance, generally speaking. Um, you know, for, for a guy, it, it doesn't matter, um, you know, how, how old we look, how many wrinkles we got. It doesn't matter how big our bellies are. It, it doesn't matter if we're wearing sweats and a T-shirt. But if we catch a glimpse of ourselves in a store window as we walk by... Yeah, still got it. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is we're, we're delusional. Um, literally, I have zero muscle definition, and yet I flex in the mirror 8 to 12 times a week. Um... Why do we do that? So it seems like we're confident. But the truth is men have very fragile egos. And, and we need that reassurance. Ladies, we do. Um, women, generally speaking, uh, they don't spend as much time looking in the mirror like men. Um, they might catch a glimpse of themselves and just keep on walking in that store reflection. Um, because they've been told their whole life through Barbies and mean girls and magazines and social media that they're not pretty enough, that they're not the right size, that they're not the right height, that they're, they don't measure up, that they're full of imperfection. Um, I, I've told you this story a number of years ago, and I thought about it again recently, um, and I'll tell you why in a second, but there's this village where if you wanted to marry a woman in the village, you had to offer the father a cow. And, uh, and you know, no one would ever offer more than three to four cows for a woman in this village. And there was one woman in this village, and uh, she, she just had zero self-esteem. Her, her father always told her how... Um, you know, how ugly she was and how you know, no one's going to marry her and no one's going to want her. And, and, uh, and she just had zero self-esteem. She just walked around the village with her head down. Uh, she didn't care about her hair, didn't care about her clothes. She didn't have good hygiene. But there was one young man in the village that he just saw her for who she really was. He saw beauty where no one else saw beauty, including her. And, and he approached the father, and he said, I want uh, to offer these seven cows for your daughter. And the father was like, what? I, I can't believe anyone's even going to offer one cow for my daughter. And he said, no, she is a seven-cow bride. You know what? That, that act of, of romance... Um, it changed her. They got married. They came back months later, and she was a different woman. And, and she looked uh, on the outside the way uh, he always knew she was. 
And uh, the village actually thought that he had divorced her and married someone else. They didn't recognize her. But once she realized that she was a seven-cow bride, she started to look and act like a seven-cow bride. And you know, that might sound offensive, that story, but, but please understand that this is a cultural thing. How many of you remember Amanda Magabo? Amanda? So Amanda, you don't see her anymore because she moved to Edmonton. And Amanda, if you're watching today, we love you and we miss you tremendously. But I remember the reason why I, I thought of this story is because uh, Amanda is engaged to be married. And um, she told me that her suitor is going to have to offer her dad a cow along with the dowry. And so I shared this story with Amanda, um, and uh, her response was this to me, how I love this story. I just read your email to my dad. He reminded me how he always called me a hundred cow girl since I was little. Amanda, you are a hundred cow girl. Husbands, I've got a little exercise for you this morning. I want you to look deep into your spouse's eyes. Go ahead. I want you to say, baby, I'd pay a hundred cows for you. Okay, calm down. We've got a little bit left here. I know about you. I know you guys, but when I, when I talk to my wife, and, and I, mean, I mean when I talk to my wife, I, I like to use a little dialogue from one of the wisest men who ever lived until Jesus. His name's Song of Solomon. His name's Solomon. His book is Song of Solomon. I just call it the love book. Mm. Man, you might want to take some notes. Charity. Wife, your hair is like a flock of goats cascading from Mount Gilead. Your navel is like a rounded goblet. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have just come up from the washing. Every one of which bears twins and none is barren among them. That means you have all of your teeth. <laughs> your waist is a heap of wheat set about the lilies. Your nose 
Oh, your nose. It's like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Yes, your nose is an instrument of navigation. Everybody get that written down? 6% of the time, guys, it works every time. That brings me to number five. Have sex. God warns us about the dangers and the consequences of adultery in Proverbs chapter 5 in verses 1 to 23. In verses, I'm not sure if I have, do I have these scriptures for this one? Okay, so verses 1 to um, 14, and I'm not going to go into these scriptures right now just for time's sake. But, but verses 1 to 14, God explains and, and talks about the dangers and the consequences of adultery. Like, like it's, it's serious. Okay, you know what? I'm going to read it. So we read verse 3. Um, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You'll say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. That's a strong warning from the Lord. Amen? So what's the solution to that? What's the solution to adultery-proof your marriage? Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow into the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts always satisfy you. May you, ne- may you ever be captivated by her love. What's God's solution to protect against adultery and in turn protect against divorce? I think that says have sex. Get it on. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't clothe them. It was his perfect will that they were to be naked, right? God wants us to be naked with our spouse, to be fully exposed, fully visible, fully vulnerable, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Adam and Eve were completely exposed before God and each other. They shared themselves completely with each other in an atmosphere of openness and intimacy. This is God's perfect picture of marriage. 
Don't withhold sex from each other. Be intentional. Both spouses be intentional. Not just the one that's always instigating sex. Every marriage, there's going to be one. I don't know of an, I've never heard of an equal balance of this. Maybe that's out there. But there's always going to be one person in the marriage. Generally speaking, who is it? You afraid to say it? It's the man. Generally speaking, it's the man. Right? And so if you're here today and, and your wife is the one who, who is always instigating sex, I just want to collectively say from all the men here, we hate you. And, <laughs> and uh, no, I'm just kidding. We don't. We don't. But you're not allowed to complain about anything for the rest of your life. But it's okay. Listen. That's, I'm going off track. But listen. We both need to be intentional. Both spouses intentional. Here's, here's the last one. Here's number six. You know, when you're here for 15 years, you get to say some things. I've, I've, got a, I've built up a little bit of credibility to say some things. Number six is choose to fight for your marriage and don't give up. Choose to fight for your marriage, don't give up. I like this quote, giving up on marriage because you don't feel love in your heart is like giving up on a car because you don't have gas. How many of you know that loving your spouse is a choice even when you don't feel like it? How many of you are so glad that Jesus went to the cross even though he didn't feel like it? Jesus didn't feel like it, but he chose to lay down his life. We need to choose to lay down our life for our spouse even when we don't feel like it. Right? Galatians 6, 9, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. University of Chicago did a pretty extensive test over five years with some married couples, and they discovered that eight out of ten couples at the beginning of the five years, eight of ten that said they were unhappy, um, eight of ten, five years later, they, they said they were happily married. Uh, two of three divorced couples, not all of them, but two of three regretted not trying harder. I've been married 23 years this August. Um, how many of you have been married, let's say, um, 20 years or, or more? Raise your hand. Okay. So those of you who have your hand raised, you guys tell me, um, <clears throat> was the first 10 years hard? Just go ahead and say a little louder. Yeah. Yeah. April's like, first 15, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Now we're 53. Okay, okay. So, um, I'm available Monday, Wednesday, Friday um, from 2 to 3. Um, and so, um, for Charity and I, that was the case with us. The first 10 years was, was quite hard. And uh, we had lots of struggles, lots of fights. And we weren't nice to each other all the time. Uh, 23 years, though, we're, we're, we're happily married. I was trying to think of something funny to say there, and nothing came, so. Um, 
but I just want to end with this story. There was, there's a woman, um, her husband had multiple affairs, and she tried. She fought for her marriage. She did this. She, she tried. And, uh, but she had enough, and nobody could blame her. And she was angry, and she felt rage whenever she thought about her husband. And one time she was um, praying, like she was fully ready to get divorced and move on. She knew she had biblical grounds to do so. She had the support of her friends and family. One time when she was praying, she felt the Lord uh, dropped a scripture into her heart. She didn't know the scripture. She looked it up. It was 1 Samuel 12, 16. It says, so now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And she felt hope. And that was the one thing she didn't want. She still was angry. But day after day, this scripture kept coming. God kept saying to her, take your stand and see the great thing that I'm going to do before your eyes. She just said, okay. So she just started watching. She started watching him and watching what God might do, and he started to change. And her prayers, the, praise, the prayers that she prayed for years started to be answered. And when it was all said and done, this was her, this was her testimony. I was ready to give up, but God was just getting started. I now have a new husband who has a new heart. And in the process, God made me new too. And so maybe you're here today and you're ready to give up. And maybe God's saying to you today that God is able to do a great thing before your eyes. Sometimes I think the solution is stay the course. Don't give up. Fight. Fight for what God's put together. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I'm just going to invite our worship team forward and our prayer team. And, um, and what we do is we sing one more song at, at King's Corner, and this is just a chance for us to respond, to respond to whatever the Lord is saying to you personally, okay? And so during this last song, you go ahead, you can engage in worship, you can engage in prayer. If you'd like to come for prayer, I'd like to invite our prayer team forward as well during this time. If you'd like to come for prayer, I know that when we talk about these things, talk about marriage, talk about divorce, talk about these things, I know sometimes it stirs up some things and, and, and maybe there's some, some inner healing that needs to happen today. And so our prayer team is ready to pray for you and, um, and, uh, and wants to pray for you. So let's just spend a little time. It's just you and the Lord, okay? Let's just spend a little time, you and the Lord. You can stay in your seat. You can sit or you can come to the front for prayer.